0: To Severn into week three of our series from the book of James that we have titled "How Faith Works." Um, James, as we've said, kind of at the beginning of every teaching in this series, is um, one of, if not the most practical book in the New Testament. And when you compare an author like James to somebody like Paul, what you'll find is one of the most glaring differences is James doesn't burn a lot of calories explaining the gospel to us as much as he ex- assumes the gospel and explains how uh, a relationship with Jesus Christ will bear itself out in our day-to-day lives. And so today, having finished chapter one last week, we are going to be in James chapter two, uh, and I'm going to read verses one through 13 to you. My brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For example, a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him, yet you dishonored that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that was pronounced over you at your baptism? Indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law, yet fails in one point, is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you're a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom, for judgment is without mercy, to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. If you've been with us the last two weeks, you might notice immediately how um, significant a uh, change this passage represents in the flow of thought in the letter of James. Because prior to this, um, we spent two weeks in chapter one, which I said we could have spent A couple of months in chapter 1, but we divided it broadly into two weeks. Um, And we talked about on week 1 how to handle trials. And we looked at what James says uh, regarding what we need to understand about the nature of trials, the potential of trials, the key to transforming your trials. Um, And then in verses 19 through the end of chapter 1, we talked about how to use the Bible. And we looked at that in two parts about what James has to say regarding how you view Scripture and how you do Scripture if you want to see... um, lasting life change um and spiritual health and growth in your life and that's what brought us all the way through chapter one but what both of of those broad topics had in common was they really uh, aimed at you as an individual and your personal life your personal trials how you personally read the bible but what we're looking at now in the beginning of chapter two james is, is is breaking clean from that and instead of just talking to us as individuals he's talking to us as a community and, um, and he's telling us what the community of Jesus' followers together should look and feel like. And specifically what he's getting into is, is how we are to treat other people. And so that's what, exactly what this, ti- this uh, teaching is titled. It's just very simply how to treat people. So what we're going to look at today in this passage is the kind of community that we're called to be, the reasons why we should become this community, and then lastly, the resources for how we can become this community. So, so out the gate, let's ask the question, according to James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, what kind of community has God called his people to be? And the answer comes at us in two parts in this passage. We're to be, number one, a community of justice but number two, at the same time, also a community of mercy. And what you're going to find over the next several minutes is James probably is not using those words the way that you and I are inclined to. So first off, um, I just want to look at, at uh, verse one, which says, My brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing we have to figure out here is what exactly is James talking about? And what does this word favoritism mean? The, the word that we translate favoritism comes from a Greek word. I found this really interesting. I read this in a commentary by um, Doug, Douglas Moo this week. The Greek word that James uses here for favoritism literally means receiving the face, receiving the face. And to receive the face of someone means uh, to make judgments about other people and to interact with people and sort of make distinctions and value judgments about people regarding externals. And in verses two and three, James talks about what was evidently a real-life example of how this was bearing itself out in this particular community that he was, he was writing to, um, where a rich man, wearing his apparent wealth, you could see at the moment that you looked at him, walks into a church meeting uh, alongside a poor man who was wearing his apparent lack of wealth. And based on external appearances, the community bestowed honor on the person who looked rich, while at the same time dishonoring the one who looked poor. That's a a very specific example of what James is talking about here, but what we need to understand is that's not all that James is talking about here because the word that he uses for favoritism is actually plural. So what James is really speaking against here is making any decision about any individual based on any external factor. Uh, You can include in here... um, making judgments about people based on their race, based on their ethnicity, based on their gender, based on their physical beauty, based on their apparent wealth or lack thereof. It's about making distinctions and interacting with people based on any external factor. That's what James is speaking against. But the reason I I say that, that we're being called to be a just community here is because look at how James describes this sin. He doesn't just call it favoritism. In verse four, at the end of that that opening section, James says that if you do this, if you treat people with favoritism and make judgments accordingly, James says you have become a judge with evil thoughts. That's a term that literally meant a judge that takes bribes. So I I, I would just ask you to let this hit you uh, as hard as it would the the people that originally read this letter, what the Word of God is saying here is that to make decisions about people based on any external factor is no different than being a judge who takes bribes from people. What that is, that is injustice. We would call a judge that, that takes bribes as an unjust judge, and so in speaking against that way of life, James is calling us to be a, a community of justice. Uh, that's the first thing that he speaks to here. But then at the very end of this passage, we see that we're also called to be a community of mercy. You see this in verse 13, the, the, the final verse in this passage, which says, jud- really sobering verse, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Now again, that, that word mercy is really interesting here because when we hear mercy in the English language, the first thing that comes to my mind probably comes to yours is the idea of, of, you know, basically letting somebody off the hook and being especially kind toward them. And so if that's how you interpret this word, then you would think what James is basically saying here is, hey, you guys are Christians. You've been shown grace. Show grace to other people. Let other people off the hook. Don't hold their sins against them. Be kind to them. And in the New Testament, the word mercy can be used in that very general sense. However, If you comb through the New Testament and see how this word is used, you'll notice that it can also have a very specific sense, specifically in the gospel accounts revolving around Jesus. I'll just give you two examples of it. Um, When Jesus was walking by, as his ministry was beginning to grow and his fame was beginning to grow, there's an account where two blind men called out to Jesus and they said, Son of David, have mercy on us. Two blind beggars on the side of the road that were destitute. And when they asked Jesus for mercy, it's important to realize they were not asking Jesus to just be nice to them, and they were not asking Jesus even to simply forgive them of their sins. What they were saying is, Jesus, we have heard that you are a healer. We have a physical, material, practical need, and we know that it's in your power to remedy that, so we're asking you to do that. And that that was considered back then an act of, of mercy. But probably the most important place that this word is used is in one of Jesus' most famous parables, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you're you're not familiar with the story, what happens in that, that story is a Samaritan finds a man who's laying on the road and at great personal risk and cost to himself... Uh, This Samaritan picks the man up, he gives him transportation, he, he provides medical care, he puts him up in an inn, he covers all the financial overlay with a down payment, and then he tells the innkeeper, whatever the cost of this man's recovery is, you go ahead and put it on my tab. At the very end of that parable, the Samaritan is referred to as the one who showed mercy. Now, very notably in that parable, the Samaritan does not preach any kind of gospel to the sick man or, or the dying man on the road. He doesn't do anything to address what we would normally consider his spiritual needs. All of it was extremely material, very practical, what we would basically refer to as social work. And yet, um, that's called an act of mercy according to Jesus. And so in the New Testament, mercy also has a very specific meaning of economic, material, practical help. So the question then, when we read verse 13 with a statement as, as sobering as James's is here, that judgment without mercy will be shown to those who have not practiced mercy to others, the question is, what kind of mercy is James talking about here? And the answer is remarkably clear if you read chapter 2 as a whole. We're not going to get into this particular verse until next week, but if you skip ahead to verse 15, James specifically talks about how utterly useless it is if you have someone in front of you who has physical, material, practical needs, they are without clothing and without food, James says, what good is it if you simply speak kind words to a person in that state without um, doing whatever is necessary to meet their practical, physical needs? And so when James is calling us to be a community of, per, of, of mercy, he's talking about being a community that actively engages in serving the poor by meeting their physical, practical, economic needs. That's what he is. Matter of fact, one of the most iconic verses in the Bible comes in James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. If you read that verse in context, James is not just talking about good works in general, he's specifically talking about acts of mercy toward the poor. Those are the works without which James says your faith is dead. And Jesus himself said that, uh, specifically in Matthew's gospel account. So, in summary, here, James is calling us to be a community of justice and mercy. Uh, He's saying that that the community of Jesus followers should be known for both of these. First off, as a community of justice, we're to refuse to make distinctions uh, inside the family of God that that bestow honor on one group while bestowing dishonor on any other group. Um, And as a community of mercy, James is saying we're, we're to be a community of people who are known um, for, for going to great lengths at personal cost to ourselves to alleviate the burdens of the poor by serving them in practical, material, physical ways. We'll, we'll be a community of justice and a community of mercy. So let me just pause here. A lot more could be said about that, but, but we're going to move on. Before we do that, let me pause and just point out how unique a passage this is because this is one of the few passages of Scripture where the Bible and, the, and our culture still lock arms. I mean, most of the time when I stand up here, I have to talk about things that in general are unpopular in our increasingly more secular culture. Uh, This is not one of those places. What I mean is you go to any major U.S. city, you can talk to people who do not believe that the Bible is the word of God, they don't even believe in, in a God, and they might even be openly hostile to the truth claims of Christianity, and yet they will vehemently agree with everything that I've said so far. And so you might hear that and think, well, I guess this, this week's teaching is kind of a no-brainer. I can just tune out here, but I don't think you should. And here's why. While this command that James offers us is not a unique command in, our, in the cultural moment that we find ourselves in, it's not nearly as unique as it would have been to the people that he originally delivered this to, what is extremely unique in James chapter two, verses one to 13, is the reasons that the word of God gives us for becoming this kind of community and the resources for becoming the kind of people that can build this community. So with that being said, I wanna, I wanna go to our second move here, and let me ask the question, why, according to the Bible, why should we become this kind of community? i want to give you two answers to that question based on this passage. The first one is very personal, and the second one is deeply theological. First off, we'll, we'll look at the personal. In verse four, James says, when, when you practice favoritism, he says in verse four, have you not discriminated among yourselves, and I want to focus on this phrase, and become judges with evil thoughts? James says here, if you practice favoritism as, as it's defined in the word of God, then you will eventually become a judge with evil thoughts. The the more that I thought about that idea, the more interesting it became to me. What James is saying here is that if you get into the the, the habit of dealing with, with people, valuing people, discriminating against people based on their outward appearance, it will affect them, but it will change you. What he's saying here is that that practice will inevitably distort who you are until you wake up one day and don't even realize what you've become. I've I've never seen a more powerful account that illustrates this than what I'm about to read you. When I was in college, I had to take a class that I I thought um, was a throwaway class. My degree is in, um, it's a it's a uh, bachelor of science in ministry leadership with a preaching concentration. And so during um, during my time in college, the only classes that I tended to care about were classes that helped me understand and communicate the Bible. And I had to take a lot of. Um, lot of classes outside of that. One of them was intro to literature, which I was not thrilled about. But in that class, I was assigned a book. It was called, I don't know if you've ever read this. It was called A Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. It was one of the most moving books that I've ever read. And I want to read you an account um, from his perspective. If you're familiar with Frederick Douglass, um, he, he was born in 1818 into slavery uh, actually, fairly near here on Home County in Talbot, uh, a home farm in Talbot County, Maryland. After a few years there, he was taken to Baltimore. And what he does in his autobiography is give you the perspective of what slavery did to people from that of a slave. Listen to this. He just got moved to Baltimore, and he said, My new mistress proved to be all she appeared when I first met her at the door a woman of the kindest heart and finest feelings. She had never had a slave under her control previously to myself, and prior to her marriage, she'd been dependent upon her own industry for a living. She was by trade a weaver, and by constant application to her business, she'd been in a good degree preserved from the blighting and dehumanizing effects of slavery. I was utterly astonished at her goodness. I scarcely knew how to behave towards her. She was entirely unlike any other white woman I had ever seen. I could not approach her as I was accustomed to approach other white ladies. My early instruction was all out of place. He said, the crouching servility, usually so acceptable a quality in a slave, did not answer when manifested toward her. Her favor was not gained by it. She seemed to be disturbed by it. She did not deem it impudent or unmannerly. For a slave to look her in the face. The meanest slave was put fully at ease in her presence, and none left without feeling better for having seen her. Her face was made of heavenly smiles, and her voice of tranquil music. What Douglas is saying there is that prior to her engagement in the institution of slavery, which is an institution that is based on the favoritism that James is explicitly speaking against here. Frederick Douglass is saying, prior to her engagement in that institution, this woman was beautiful on the inside and out, but listen to how he goes on to describe her. He said, but alas, this kind heart had but a short time to remain such. The fatal poison of irresponsible power was already in her hands and soon commenced its infernal work. That cheerful eye... Under the influence of slavery, soon became red with rage. That voice, made all of sweet accord, changed to one of harsh and horrid discord, and that angelic face gave place to that of a demon. The whole point of that account in his autobiography is to demonstrate that slavery had a profound impact not only on slaves but on the people who own slaves. What Douglas is saying here is that simply treating another human being from from his perspective, and I don't know how you could have a a more insightful perspective than his own, he's saying that treating treating another human being with with unkindness and cruelty and stripping them of their dignity and doing everything that James is specifically speaking against here, it, it not only affected those on the other side of it, but it it irreparably altered the people who treated others that way. And what's so kind of ironic is that if you know the story of Frederick Douglass, you know that he went on to escape the institution of slavery. He went on to be a powerful voice in the abolitionist movement and even to go on and advocate for women's suffrage and all kinds of things. And so his life is the story of someone who went on to escape the effects of slavery while the woman in this account never did. She never did. She wound wound up to be more profoundly altered by the institution of slavery than Douglas himself did as a slave. And so the point that he's making here is the same account that James is making in the word of God here. It's that when we practice favoritism of any kind, when we choose to set up distinctions that God would tear down, not only in the family of God, but in his creation in general, when we violate that, uh, it's not just the people we treat poorly that'll be affected, it's us. Because showing favoritism actually changes us. That's the personal reason. But at the end of this passage, James gives us a deeply theological reason. I'm going to read verses 8 to 13 to you. He says, Indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in the Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire, this is such a, This particular verse hit me harder this week than it ever has before. For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you're a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a big block of text and it basically took me kind of dwelling on this and meditating on this all week to really get, to begin to get a read on what James is saying here. Um, it, I want to look at it from two layers. <clears throat> First off on the surface, James is, is trying to get us to compare uh, the sins of discrimination and indifference to the poor to the sins of adultery and murder. That's what he's doing here. He's getting us to draw a comparison between the two of them to make the point that they are exactly as serious as each other. That's what he's saying in verse 10. Because what all those sins have in common is they all violate the same law that was given by the same God. It's it's a very grabby way of making his point. It's meant to kind of wake us up and startle us and force us to ask ourselves the question, and I'll just make this question personal for you. Do you see it that way? Do you see it the way that James is saying it actually is? What James is saying here is that you should see, <clears throat> let's take two churches across the street from one another. You should see if church A is full of discrimination and indifference to the poor. You should see that church the same way that you see a church that's full of adultery and murder. That's what James is saying. The question is, do we see it that way? It should, James is saying it should be exactly as appalling It should be exactly as out of place. It should be exactly as inappropriate to hear that a community of people who have been saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus tolerate discrimination and indifference to the poor as it would be to see a community of Jesus' followers tolerate adultery and murder. So the question is, do you and I see it that way? Because James says we should. So, so on the surface, what he's saying is it's, it's shocking, it's startling, it's, it's, it's meant to wake us up to reality. But underneath that, I think James is making an even deeper point that has perhaps never been more important for Christians to understand than it is for you and I in the cultural moment that we're in today. Bold statement to make. Let me, let me try to make my case here. Let's, let's look one more time at what James is comparing. Uh, he's, he's comparing on the one hand discrimination and indifference to the poor, to adultery and murder. And let me ask the question, is James just doing this to be grabby? Is he just doing this to be a shock jock? Obviously, I do not believe so. I think there's a deep theological point to be made here. Notice, on the one hand, practicing justice and mercy. That's what James is calling us to. Justice and mercy, which means refusing to show favoritism and, and actively caring for the poor, what those two things have in common is, is, is they, they fall into the category, please don't let this term make you nervous, those two things fall into the category of what you could call social morality. I just mean morality that's aimed outward at society, justice and mercy, that's what they have in common. However, on the other hand, the, the other two sins that James is getting us to compare those to, adultery and murder, and remember how Jesus himself defined murder. Jesus said if you just harbor a grudge and bitterness and resentfulness towards somebody, that's exactly the same as murder in the eyes of God. Even if it stays internal to you, that is no different than committing murder in the eyes of God. So when James compares that to adultery and murder, uh, those, those are two sins that both deal more, not so much with social morality as personal purity. So just consider this, that by deliberately comparing those two, and, and calling you and I to equate those two, what James is doing, he's making the point that if you are really following the whole Jesus of the Bible, the, that, that's the Jesus that we talked about two weeks ago, James himself grew up with, so he happened to know a thing or two about. James is saying if you're really following the whole Jesus of the Bible and you're really allowing Jesus to shape your life, what will happen is you, you will hold those two things together. You will hold together social morality and personal purity, and this is not the first time that James has made this point in the letter of James. All the way at the at the end of chapter one, verse twenty-seven, I was really upset. I didn't have the time to get to this last week. I really wanted to, and now here's my opportunity. In James chapter one, verse twenty-seven, he, he, James makes this incredibly profound statement. That that's another one of those things that's easy to mouse over. Here's what he says: Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this. Let me pause. Do you understand how amazing it is that James is getting ready to fill in that blank for us? The brother of Jesus Christ is getting ready to say, I'm going to summarize everything that matters to God. You know, Jesus himself was known for all the time calling out defiled religion, impure religion, dead religion, ugly religion. James is saying there is such a thing as pure and undefiled religion. It's defined exactly one way in the eyes of our God and Father, and here's what it is. He says, it boils down to looking after orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself unstained by the world. Now again, and I feel like this is the book of James in a nutshell, that's another one of those statements you read and you think, where's he coming from there? Why these two things and not an infinite number of other things? But what I want you to notice here is the same theme that we can point out in chapter 2. That this first element of pure and undefiled religion according to God looking after widows and orphans, that's again, that would fall into the category of social morality, where the other side of pure and undefiled religion, keeping oneself unstained by the world, that deals with personal purity. Now, what I'm about to say is probably gonna make some people uncomfortable. But as I've often said, what good is preaching if it doesn't make everybody uncomfortable? Please consider this. In the culture that you and I live in today, and I mean specifically the cultural moment that we find ourselves in in the secular modern West right now, those two things, social morality and personal purity, are not held together because one of them sounds very liberal and the other one sounds very conservative. (sighs) Let's just do it. Because of how polarized Our culture is right now specifically along political party lines. I've said this before. My father was born in 1945, said he's never seen things, never felt things more divided than they are right now, specifically along political lines, red and blue, left and right, liberal and conservative. Because of that, I would, let me just offer to you, I don't like saying I would argue because I'm not really here to argue with you about anything. Let me just offer it to you. That sounds more engaging, right? Let me offer to you that there has never been more pressure on both individual Christians and on local churches to cling to one of these halves of pure and undefiled religion while letting go of, jettisoning, and, and kind of distancing ourselves from the other. And if you, if you pick your head up and you look around our society, that is exactly what churches largely have done. So what you have, this is, I don't know how you can argue with this. But in general, what you, would, what you would define it as is liberal churches have a tendency to emphasize, let's call it social morality. Uh, that, that's justice for the oppressed, caring for the poor, you know, speaking out for those that have very little societal power. Liberal churches make a big deal of that, but those same churches are very quiet when it comes to talking about personal purity, things like sexual morality, So for instance, what you're not going to hear in liberal churches today is this idea that, I said I'd make everybody comfortable, let me go ahead and make good on that promise now, that sex, according to the Bible, is to be exclusively enjoyed inside of a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman defined by marriage. And any expression of sex outside of that is by definition, by God's definition, sexual immorality. You don't hear that in liberal churches today. But they make a very big deal about the social morality. Conversely, on the other side of that, I think it's fair to say the conservative churches have basically gone exactly the other way, where conservative, church, highly conservative churches in our culture are known for being extremely bold about personal purity. They celebrate family values. They talk about uh, the value of a traditional sexual ethic. They talk about standing up for the truth and resisting the cultural slide into relativism that is marked and observable in our culture today, and yet I think it's fair to say that those same churches often are not known for that same boldness and that same tenacity when it comes to speaking out against racism and discrimination and actively looking for ways to serve and love and elevate the poor because they tend to adopt this mindset of, hey, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's what I had to do, which I'm sorry to say when you listen to what James says and Jesus Christ himself said, that's not a biblical way to view the poor. So, so the point that I'm trying to make here is that we're living in this culture that tends to pull those two things apart. But one major theme of the book of James is that genuine, genuine Christianity, one of, the way, one of the only ways that you know that your Christianity is genuine is that you find yourself holding together what the world says you have to pull apart. And the specific uh, instance in James chapter 2 that we're looking at today is telling us that a healthy community of Jesus' followers will be known and marked by not only their concern for social morality, but also for their concern for personal purity. That means that if you're following the whole Jesus of the Bible as a community, you will be known for treating discrimination and indifference exactly as seriously as you'll treat things like adultery and murder. So maybe you've heard me say this before, but I don't know that it's always been really clear exactly what I've meant. I've often made the point that Christianity is not simply liberalism or conservatism. That Christianity does not fit neatly into the man-made philosophies, ideologies, and worldviews or ways of thinking of this world because it comes from God. Therefore, it transcends the man-made categories and groups that we create in this world. When I say that Christianity is not liberalism or conservatism, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that, that Christians are called to be some middle-of-the-road centrist community that's so mealy-mouthed about what it believes that it never offends anybody because Jesus did not live that way. One of the most remarkable things about Jesus is he lived in a culture where the Romans and the religious leaders agreed about nothing. They didn't see eye to eye on anything except for one thing, which is that Jesus had to die. Jesus was not a middle-of-the-road, mealy-mouthed centrist. He transcended and he challenged both parties of his day, all parties of his day. And those who claim to follow the whole Jesus of the Bible need to get comfortable being uncomfortable and drawing criticism from both sides. Because what that means is that if you follow Jesus then you will at the same, you're not gonna fit into any category any longer. You're gonna need your brothers and sisters in Christ to continue following him. But but what it means to follow the whole Jesus of the Bible is that we will be at the very same time more dedicated to social morality than liberal people while at the very same time more dedicated to personal purity than conservative people because we have a better reason for doing both of those things. What it boils down to, according to James, is we know that our God has commanded it and called us to it. Looking forward to my inbox tomorrow. (laughs) All right, so there you have two biblical reasons that the church should be known as a community. I don't know how to phrase that any more clearly, by the way. So, you know, if you have questions, feel free to talk to me afterwards. But that's probably about the best I got given the the, the 35 years of wisdom I've managed to accrue. And it ain't much. All right, Uh, those are two reasons why the church should be known as a community of justice and mercy. The first is, is that failing to do so will affect you. The second is that failing to do so will offend God. But like I pretty much always say at the end of my teachings or near the end of my teachings, that alone isn't enough. If, 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 the only, if we try to leave today trying to be what James is calling the people of God to be simply because we're afraid of us becoming these ugly people or, or incurring the wrath of God, That's a fear-based thing. That might get us to restrain our hearts momentarily, but that's not powerful enough to change a heart. And to become the community, becoming this community that James is talking about here is gonna require nothing less than newness of heart. And so what I wanna leave today with is how I end every single teaching is by talking about the resource that we need, that we have access to in order to become this community. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. It's always Jesus. And if it's ever not Jesus, find a new pastor. Verse 1, James says, My brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Commentators will point out uh, how, how significant it is that James refers to Jesus as our glorious Lord Jesus Christ here because this is the, the only time in the entire New Testament that Jesus is spoken of this way. And you notice, James does not call him our loving Lord Jesus Christ, our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ, or even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk just real briefly about what glory actually means. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the word for glory, this is going to sound strange at first, the word for glory literally means heaviness or weight which is very strange to say, well, so if God's glory, that means that he's heavy, it means that he has weight, but it makes sense the more that you think about it because what the Bible's saying is that when a being has glory, it means that that being matters. That's a being of substance. That's a being whose presence is felt. They cannot be ignored or taken lightly. And so the way that I think about it, if you were to drop a bowling ball on a glass coffee table, that glass coffee table has no option, no, no choice but to shatter and give way to the bowling ball because, biblically speaking, that bowling ball has that much glory that the, that the glass coffee table really can't take it. And when you understand that, it makes perfect sense what you see in interactions between God and people, specifically in the Old Testament, because what happens is when God shows up, people do what coffee tables do under the weight of a bowling ball. When God began to peel back an iota of his glory and reveal himself to Isaiah the prophet, all Isaiah could do was say, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And what was happening in that moment is the bowling ball of God's glory was shattering Isaiah's life. That's how glorious he is. We have no option but to give way to a being of that much glory. And what James is saying here in the very beginning of this passage is he's reminding us that Jesus Christ is not just glorious, but if you look at the way that he phrases it in the Greek, he's saying that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. There is no being in the universe that can compare to the glory of Jesus Christ. Nothing matters more than him. Nothing has more substance than him. He is glory personified. Now connect that idea in verse 1 to what James says in verse 5. He says, listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he's promised to those who love him? Didn't God choose the poor? Now, when I first read that, I thought, and this is what a lot of commentary said, I thought what James was basically saying is we should be kind to poor people because in general, the gospel flows a lot more naturally and easily to the poor than it does the middle class or the rich. And that, historically speaking, is, that's a plain fact of history. Over the last 2,000 years, when you study revivals, where you study where the gospel has moved, it's it's an undeniable fact that the people that that embrace the gospel tend to not so much be the rich and the powerful and the elites and the comfortable, as much as it's people who are extremely uh, humble and poor and understand their own need. And so with that in mind, I thought what James is saying is basically, hey, be nice to the poor, because in general, a lot of Christians are poor. Uh, However, let me ask you to look again at what James is saying. He's saying God chose the poor, and he made them rich in faith and heirs of his kingdom. We just consider, I feel like I, I bring this up every week, James is writing to believers who, as Christians, all of that could be said of them. He's writing to a community of people who've been saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, and so as Christians, these were people who, just like James says, the poor, these were people who had been chosen by God. These were people who had been made rich in faith and they are now, because of their relationship with Jesus, heirs of God's kingdom. And so when James says here, hey, don't forget that God loves to take those who are poor and unload riches on them, James is not just saying be nice to the poor. What he's saying is don't you dare forget how poor you were before God found you. He's saying, don't you dare forget that the gap between you and God is infinitely greater than whatever gap you believe exists between you and another human being, that you are infinitely poorer in the eyes of God than any human being could ever be in your eyes. And yet despite your poverty, God has unloaded wealth on you, he has bestowed riches on you, He has made you heir of an inheritance that you had no right to in your own merit. And he has done all of this at the infinite cost of his own son, the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. So if I had to bottom line this whole teaching, the most important thing I'm going to say today is this. The only way for you and I to become the kind of community that's laid out for us in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, is by understanding that the gospel is telling us that in this stunning display of irony, Jesus Christ, the most glorious being in all of creation, in the ultimate display of his glory, chose to give his glory up for you and I. That rather than, than practicing favoritism, which would have excluded all of us, or or being indifferent to our plight the way that we're so often indifferent to the plight of those that God places in our lives Jesus Christ volunteered himself for poverty and gave up not only his wealth but his life so that you and I could be rich by grace through faith in him and if you just reverse engineer this here's what this means that when you and I practice the favoritism that the Word of God forbids, what we're really doing, this is all it boils down to, is we're telling on ourselves. And we're, telling, we're announcing to everyone around us exactly how starved for glory we really are. Because when we distance ourselves from people who would cost us and gravitate only toward those who are like us or will benefit us what we're doing is we're trying to use other people to get the glory that the gospel says can only be ours and already is ours in Jesus. And so what this means is that until we understand what Jesus has done for us, not only can we not be a part of this community, we will be a detriment to this community. We, we, will never, we will tear down a community of justice and mercy until we understand what Jesus has done for us because apart from being moved by what Jesus has given up for us and freely offers to us, we'll try to take from others what can only be found in Jesus and we'll network and we'll use them as a means to an end. It's o- the only way that this community can, can materialize The only chance we stand at becoming what we're called to be here is as men and women understand and understand more deeply what Jesus has done for us and what he makes available to us by grace through faith in his name. Let me call the worship team up. We're going to close on this note. This week, I came across an article by David Bentley Hart. I found this really inspiring, and I hope you will as well. In his article, he explained that the whole idea for hospitals... um, was actually an idea that was originally brought into society by Christians. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. St. Ephraim, in the year 350, lived in the city of Edessa, which was ravaged by a plague. And rather than fleeing from the city like everyone else did in that day to leave the sick and the dying to care for themselves, he stayed behind and he established a hospital that would be open to everyone, which was a previously unheard of idea. Around that same time, St. Basil the Great established a hospital with a ward that was specifically dedicated to people with leprosy whom he would care for with his own hands. That was in a time and a place when lepers were cut off from all human community and treated as a subhuman species. He created a hospital with a room specifically built for them. In Rome, a Christian scholar and noblewoman named St. Fabiola established the first public hospital in Western Europe. And despite the fact that she was rich, she would often be seen going out into the streets into the most dangerous places of the city looking for those who needed help the most. In the Middle Ages, the Benedictines were responsible for starting over 2,000 hospitals in Western Europe. And in addition to providing medical care, they also gave food to the hungry, shelter to the homeless, and alms to the poor. And the whole point of that article is this idea that, that hospitals, which are a given to us, we can't even conceive of a civilized society without, you know, a medical system that can care for people who are in need of it, that idea sounded crazy and was unheard of until Christians made it happen. And like so many things that, that Christians did, specifically in the early church, it begs the question why. And I'd like to end today just by asking you that question. What would possess people to give up their wealth in order to elevate the poor? What would possess people to leave behind their comfortable lifestyles that they no doubt worked hard to earn for themselves in order to seek out the destitute. What would possess people to put themselves in harm's way to care for people with debilitating infectious diseases? What would possess people to invest so much in those who would never be able to pay them back? It makes absolutely no no sense whatsoever until you understand the gospel, but when you understand the gospel, it makes perfect sense because what all of those people had in common is they all understood that what they were doing for others is exactly what God through Christ had done for them on an infinitely greater scale. And according to the word of God, when a community of people corporately realizes what Jesus Christ has done for them, when we understand what the Lord of glory has given up for us, what we now stand to inherit and and in a lot of ways already have because of his poverty, when that becomes the foundation of our lives, the focal point of our worship, we will by necessity Become a community of justice and mercy. And that, according to James, is how you treat people. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for, for Jesus. I don't know what to say at the end of this other than thank you for Jesus, who though he was rich, for our sakes became poor, that we might become rich in him. Thank you that every single one of us, simply because of the sacrifice in Jesus, all we need to do is give our lives to him and in that moment we're rich in faith and we are made heirs of an inheritance that we can't even put into words. We can't even speak whispers of. We can't begin to imagine what we stand to inherit and already have in Jesus. And that only came at, an, at a cost that we'll never understand. A savior who was glory, a savior who had wealth, who had honor, who had, who had everything that was his and gave it all up for us willing to be dispossessed, willing to be mistreated, willing to be impoverished, willing to be disrespected, forsaken, abused, and abandoned so that we could become adopted children of the Most High God? How could we possibly not extend that same kind of kindness, that same kind of mercy, that same kind of love to the people that you put around us? Please make us the kind of community you've called us to be. Our lives don't belong to us now anyway. You've purchased them with your life. So teach us what it is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to become a community of justice and mercy that this world might not always agree with but cannot ignore. By grace through faith, in the name of Jesus. All God's people said, amen. Amen.